0: we step into the message this evening, it's going to be a little bit different than a typical message. It's going to be a, almost, almost a little bit of a story time, at least at first. Um, Matt, I apologize, you're not going to have a whole lot of hints as to when to switch to the next slide. So Matt's going to really have to play some guesswork this evening, and if you see things flying all over the screen, you, you know why. The, the beginning of the message, as far as our notes are concerned, will be uh, heavily pictorial. So I trust that those of you who are pictorial, those of you that really enjoy sitting down and watching Mom read a book and showing you the pictures, and at the end of each page you have to see the pictures, you're going you're gonna to like at least the beginning of the message this evening. But the message has a, a tremendous pointed direction as we walk through it and get to our application. And the pointed direction that we're going to come to will be humility. You know, we talked this morning about Answers in Genesis in the debate this last week, and as we talked about it, you know, one of the things that was interesting this week, as my wife and I were watching the debate and the post-debate and the continuing debate and all of those things, the creationist worldview is so regularly ridiculed that sometimes. I have found in my own heart at least that one of the buffers for that ridicule in my life has been an element of pride. Whereby I look at all of these people that are criticizing the biblical worldview or criticizing young earth creation and I say, well, these people are just fools. They just don't understand. They can't understand. And it's true, they can't understand. And and the Scriptures do tell us in Romans chapter 1 professing themselves to be wise, they became fools. But, when the Scriptures speak of our knowledge, Paul said it this way, knowledge puffeth up, but charity edifieth. The idea that love is that which edifies, not knowledge. And we need to remember as we walk through this Christian life, the importance of humility. Even when we're right and they're wrong, and even when they can't grasp the concepts that we do, even whether it's political or um, economic or spiritually speaking, uh, people seem to completely miss it. And, and, and you've got a good grasp on what the Word of God tells you. It's important for us to remember humility. And the, the great reason why humility is so important, and the great reason why humility is so exalted in the eye of the Lord is because it is the very essence of His Son, Jesus Christ. It is the very essence of what compelled Christ to the cross. It is the very essence of what brought about salvation for you and I. And that's where we're going to end up this evening. We'll get there in a little bit. But we're beginning in the time of Ezekiel. Ezekiel is prophesying by the river Kibar near Babylon in a refugee camp. And as he's prophesying... In Ezekiel 17, the Word of the Lord comes to him again. Take a look with me at verse 1. And the Word of the Lord came unto me, saying, Son of man, put forth a riddle, and speak a parable unto the house of Israel. And say, Thus saith the Lord God, a great eagle with great wings, long winged, full of feathers, which have diverse colors, came into Lebanon and took the highest branch of the cedar. He cropped off the top of the young twigs and carried it into the land of traffic and set it in a city of merchants. As we begin, we begin with a parabolic riddle this evening. A parable that's also said to be a riddle. And the way this riddle, the way this parable begins is with a great tree and a great eagle. This eagle is said to be an eagle of diverse colors, of great wings, long and full of feathers. And this diverse colored great eagle swoops into Lebanon and takes the highest branch of a cedar tree. The cedars of Lebanon were renowned for their strength. The cedars of Lebanon were renowned for their, their um, good wood for building, whether it be ships or whether it be, um, whether it be houses. Um, David, King David's palace was made with the cedars of Lebanon. The great ships of Tarshish and of Tyre and Sidon were made with the tremendous strong wood of the cedars of Lebanon. And this eagle swoops down and takes of the very highest branches of that cedar. And it says that he took this branch... And he brought it into a great land. It said a land of traffic. And set it in this city of merchants. And so this eagle swoops into this city and pl- takes this twig and places it in this great city. The land of traffic uh, being insinuating a, a land of great commerce. A land that is very strong economically. An economic powerhouse for the time. And there that branch will rest in this land of traffic. But the Scriptures also tell us that this beautiful eagle, diverse colors and strength, took a seed from the land of Lebanon and planted that seed in a field. And that seed would rest in a field, but it wasn't just any field. Notice what it says in verse 5. He took also of the seed of the land and planted it in a fruitful field. He placed it by great waters and set it as a willow tree. So this was going to be a a tree, planted to be a great tree that would spring forth next to a a place of fertility and of growth, a field that was was worthy of, of great trees. But as it grew, it didn't become a great willow the Scriptures tell us that it became a spreading vine. There's a pretty big difference between a willow and a vine. Willows grow up. Vines grow out. And it was said to be a healthy vine, but a vine nonetheless. And a vine would be lowly. It would stay close to the ground. And it was under the talons, if you will, of the great eagle. It was submissive to the great eagle. Verse 6 says, "...it grew and became a spreading vine of low stature, whose branches turned toward Him, and the roots thereof were under Him." That's that great, colorful eagle. So it became a vine. Brought forth branches and shot forth sprigs. And so this was a healthy vine. A fruitful vine. A vine under the care of the great eagle. The Scriptures then tell us of another great eagle. It was a great eagle as well with great wings and many feathers. And the Scriptures tell us in verse 7 that this vine bent her roots toward Him, this other great eagle, and shot forth the branches toward That eagle. Matt, I'll have you switch one more after this. Um, Very good. Thank you, sir. Two eagles. You have the colorful eagle, and you have this other great eagle. It's said to be a great eagle, though it doesn't remark of any colors of the sort. And this low-crawling vine began to shoot its branches toward... The second great eagle. Away from the colorful eagle. And verse 8 says it was planted in good soil by great waters. We know that because that's where, Bab- that's where the, the, um, the, the colorful eagle planted this vine. And it was done so that it might bear fruit. Notice what it says, what the Scriptures tell us in verse 9 or ask. Say thou, thus saith the Lord God, shall it, this vine, prosper? Shall he not pull up the roots thereof? Who? Well, this colorful eagle. This colorful eagle that had planted this seed and had allowed this vine to grow, and now this vine is no longer willing to stay under the colorful eagle. It spreads its roots and its vines toward this other great eagle. And the scriptures tell us, therefore, this colorful, this great and colorful eagle will tear up this vine by its roots. It will not allow it to prosper as it originally desired it to do. Verse 10, Yea, behold, being planted, shall it prosper? Shall it not utterly wither when the east wind toucheth it? It shall wither in the furrows where it grew. So God said, an east wind is coming. And when that east wind touches this vine, the roots will have been plucked up and it's going to wither. So is the parabolic riddle found in Ezekiel 17. Now the question is, what does it mean? Well, that is what we see in verses 11 through 21. The explanation of this riddle. And so we see... First, as we go through these slides again, this great cedar is Israel. And this beautiful, colorful eagle is Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon. Verse 12 says, Say now to the rebellious house, know ye not what these things mean? Tell them, Behold, the king of Babylon is come to Jerusalem and hath taken the king thereof and the princes thereof and led them with him to Babylon, So here Nebuchadnezzar stands as this great colorful eagle. Strength and beauty. And he's the one that swoops in and takes the top branches of the cedar of Lebanon. Well, the cedar of Lebanon is Israel. The topmost branch would be Israel's king. And so the great eagle takes Israel's king and as the Scriptures told us, He took this king into the land of traffic and set it in a city of merchants. Well, the Scriptures reveal to us that this land of traffic being Babylon to the land where the king was taken, the eagle is carrying Israel's king, Jehoiachin. And Jehoiachin is taken into the land of Babylon. We've talked about that in prophecy already. And he is left in the land of traffic. He's left in the land of Babylon. In fact, the entire book of Ezekiel revolves around Jehoiachin's captivity, does it not? The very first verses in the book of Ezekiel speak of the day when uh, Ezekiel began to see the visions of the Lord. And as he began to see the visions of the Lord, it was in the fifth year of the captivity of Jehoiachin. And so Jehoiachin is that topmost cedar or twig of the cedar of Lebanon, of Israel that was taken by this great eagle, Nebuchadnezzar, and dropped into the land of traffic, into the land of merchandise, into Babylon. But the great eagle didn't forsake the land of Lebanon. The Scriptures then describe that seed. That seed which was taken by the great eagle and was dropped into a fruitful field. Well, we know that after Jehoiachin was taken into captivity, Nebuchadnezzar did not just forsake the land. He did not just obliterate Israel at that time. He placed a new king in Jerusalem, one who he expected to be loyal to him. This was the uncle of Jehoiachin. His name was Zedekiah. And he was given the opportunity to continue the nation of Israel in the city of Jerusalem as a vassal king under Babylon. Nebuchadnezzar gave him every chance to prosper. Now he wouldn't prosper as a great willow. He would prosper as a fruitful vine. He would have to be lowly. He would have to remain humble. Healthy, but humble as a vassal rule in a weakened Israel. And so the land would be very weak. The king would be very weak as we look at the next slide. He would be a lowly vine under the strength of Babylon. But notice verse 14. Uh, Excuse me, verse 13. It says, "...and hath taken the king's seed and made a covenant with him and hath taken an oath of him." "...He hath also taken the mighty of the land, that the kingdom might be base, and that it might not lift itself up, but that by keeping of His covenant it might stand." So this is the lowly vine. It's a base nation. It's a humble nation. But it's a nation nonetheless. But notice verse 15. "...But He rebelled against Him in sending His ambassadors into Egypt, that they might give Him horses and much people. Shall He prosper? Shall He escape that doeth such things?" Or shall he break the covenant and be delivered? So there's the picture of the next eagle. Not a colorful, beautiful eagle as Nebuchadnezzar was. This would be Egypt and the pharaoh of Egypt. And here Israel begins to spread its roots under this vassal King Zedekiah and begins to reach its branches toward Egypt seeking to be delivered through deception. Deception. From Babylon. But here's the problem. Jeremiah had told the nation of Israel that they should submit themselves to the king of Babylon. Zedekiah had sworn an oath to the king of Babylon to allow him to rule. God does not appreciate when His people go back on their word. God does not bless when His people go back on their word. And here was the king of this humble but fruitful nation going back on his word and deceptively entreating Egypt for horses and people to fight against the king of Babylon. God says, shall he escape that doeth these things? Or shall he break the covenant and be delivered? Verse 16, he says, As I live, saith the Lord God, surely in the place where the king dwelleth that made him king, whose oath he despised, and whose covenant he break, even with him in the midst of Babylon, he shall die. This man will die in the midst of Babylon. Neither shall Pharaoh with his mighty army and great company make for him uh, in the war by casting up mounts and building forts to cut off many persons, seeing he despised the oath by breaking the covenant." When, lo, He had given His hand, and hath done all these things, He shall not escape. Therefore, thus saith the Lord God, verse 19: as I live, surely mine oath that He hath despised, and my covenant that He hath broken, even it will I recompense upon His own head. And I will spread my net upon Him, and He shall be taken in my snare, and I will bring Him to Babylon. And He will plead with Him there for His trespass, that He hath trespassed against me and all his fugitives with all his bands shall fall by the sword. And they that remain shall be scattered toward all winds. And ye shall know that I, the Lord, have spoken it. We've seen this prophesied again and again. That's why I'm not spending too much time on it. This is God promising that these final wicked kings in Israel would be taken to Babylon and would die there and that the nation would be dispersed. It's another promise of judgment. But I'm going to ask to get interactive here just for a moment. Can somebody tell me every time there's a prophecy of judgment in the book of Ezekiel that we have seen thus far, what always accompanies the prophecy of judgment? Sarah. Hope. The promise of restoration. Isn't that amazing? That every single time God is promising judgment against the nation of Israel. The prophecy always ends with a promise of restoration, with hope, with the remembrance that there's something better coming, that there's something more that God has planned for Israel. And that's what we see in verses 23 through 22, excuse me, through 24. We see the hope, we see the blessing. And this is what he says in verse 22. Thus saith the Lord God, I will also take of the highest branch of the high cedar, and I will set it. I will crop off the top of, the, of His young twigs a tender one. I will plant him upon a high mountain and eminent. So the Scriptures tell us that there will be a tree. And that tree will have a twig. And that twig will be lifted up from the very highest point of that tree and will be placed on a high mountain. And in verse 23, the Scriptures say this, "...in the mountain of the height of Israel will I plant it, and it shall bring forth boughs, and bear fruit, and be a goodly cedar, and under it shall dwell all fowl of every wing. In the shadow of the branches thereof shall they dwell. And all the trees of the field shall know that I, the Lord, have brought down the high tree and have exalted the low tree, have dried up the green tree, and have made the dry tree to flourish." I, the Lord, have spoken and have done it. What is this great tree that was taken from the very top, this small twig, taken from the top of the highest cedar in Lebanon and planted on the highest hill and made to grow and made to become a beautiful and a great and a grand tree so that all of the birds would, of every wing would flock to it. What is this hope that God has promised? I refer you to Jeremiah 23 for our answer. Verses 5 and 6 tell us this. Behold, the days come, saith the Lord, that I will raise unto David a righteous branch. A righteous branch. What's this about a branch? Why a branch? What is a righteous branch? Well, a branch of the seed of David. Notice branch in our King James at least, is capitalized. Our translators believed it was speaking of someone in particular. Let's see what else this verse says. And a king shall reign and prosper and shall execute judgment and justice in the earth. In his days Judah shall be saved and Israel shall dwell safely. And this is his name whereby he shall be called the Lord our Righteousness. God promised in the days of Ezekiel that there would be a twig, a sapling, pulled from the highest of the tree of Lebanon, planted inconspicuously on the mountain. It would be small. It would be unassuming. But this branch would grow to be a great cedar on the top of the mountain that everyone would flock to. Are you seeing the imagery? Are you seeing the hope? Are you seeing the promised one? And Philippians 2, 9-11 tells us this. Wherefore God also hath highly exalted Him that is Christ, and given Him a name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow of things in heaven and things in earth and things under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. This in Philippians chapter 2, verses 9 through 11, is a picture of the tree when it grew to become a great tree that all of the birds would flock to, that all of the cedars of the valley would be like nothing in comparison to the tree. So we see the Christological imagery. We see this passage pointing to the glory of the righteous branch that is Jesus Christ that will rise in the day of the Lord and will be that victorious King over all Israel and over all the earth. But as we apply this evening, my question is, in our imagery, where did that great tree begin? That great tree began as a small sapling planted in a high hill. Please turn with me to Philippians chapter 2. We just referenced verses 9 through 11. Our application this evening will be in verses 1 through 11, 1 through 8 specifically for us. And let's read verses 1 through 8 together of Philippians chapter 2. If there be therefore any consolation in Christ, if any comfort of love, if any fellowship of the Spirit, if any bowels and mercies, fulfill ye my joy, that ye be like-minded, having the same love, being of one accord of one mind. Let nothing be done through strife or vainglory, but in lowliness of mind let each esteem other better than themselves. Look not every man on his own things, but every man also on the things of others. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God, but made Himself of no reputation, took upon Him the form of a servant, and was made in the likeness of men. And being found in fashion as a man, He humbled Himself and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. Remain in Philippians chapter 2, but I recall your mind to Ezekiel, Seventeen, And in verse 24, the Scriptures told us that God exalts the low tree and dries up the green tree. He exalts the lowly and He dries up that which is self-exalted. We see this truth declared all throughout Scriptures. In Proverbs chapter 3, verse 34, the Scriptures tell us, Surely He scorneth the scorners, but He, that's God, giveth grace unto the lowly. In James 4.6, the Scriptures tell us, but he giveth more grace, wherefore he saith, God resisteth the proud, but giveth grace to the humble. God told us in 1 Peter 5.5, 5, Likewise ye younger, submit yourselves unto the elder. Yea, all of you be subject one to another and be clothed with humility. For God resisteth the proud, and giveth grace to the humble. Do you see the theme? Why is it that God resists the proud and gives grace to the humble? Why is it that the humility of the believer is such a tremendous virtue in his life? Because this is Christ. Because this is how the will of of God was done through Christ. By Jesus Christ being found in fashion as a man humbling himself. Becoming obedient unto the death of the cross. The Scriptures tell us in Matthew 18, verses 3 and 4, Verily I say unto you, except ye be converted and become as little children, ye shall not enter into the kingdom of heaven. Whosoever therefore shall humble himself as this little child, the same is greatest in the kingdom of heaven. See, this is how God's economy works. In the world that is around us, The man that gets ahead is the man with self-confidence. The man that says, I'm going to get there. The man with swagger. The man who is the best because he thinks himself the best. The man who is willing to forge ahead. In God's economy, it's not that way. The exalted one in God's economy is the humble one. Is the one that will come to God as a little child. Humble. Unassuming. And the scriptures tell us that the one who is humble, then the Lord will exalt. The one who willingly defers in this life has exaltation in the next. Matthew chapter 20, verse 16. So the last shall be first, and the first last. For many be called, but few chosen. You want to please the Lord? Do you want to be that one that in the eyes of God is exalted? Then be the one who is willing to be last. Be the one who is willing to be humble. Be the one who is willing to take all of those things that you think are so good about yourself and to place them in their proper context in light of who God is. Be the one who will not forge ahead in your own will, but will willingly submit yourself to God's will. See, because as God was promising the hope to Israel, He promised hope would not be found in the very greatest that the cedar of Lebanon had to offer, but the very least that the cedar of Lebanon had to offer. And in the very least that Israel could produce, that being this one that would come out of Bethlehem Ephrathah, though there be little among the prophets, yet out of thee shall come a great king. Out of the least of the nation of Israel, out of the lowliest of births, out of the smallest of circumstances would come the greatest of kings. So you want to do something wonderful for God. You want God to use you in magnificent ways. Where do we even start? Start by being small. Start by being small in your own eyes. Start by being small in the world's eyes. See... Paul tells us that pride is one of the great reasons why men and women do not come to Christ. 1 Corinthians 1, verses 26-29. We memorize these verses. You know them well. For ye see your calling, brethren, how that not many wise men after the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble are called. But God hath chosen the foolish things of the world to confound the wise. And God hath chosen the weak things of the world to confound the things which are mighty and base things of the world, and things which are despised hath God chosen. Yea, and things which are not, to bring to naught things that are, that no flesh should glory in His presence. You want to make a difference for God? Be this big. You want to make a difference for God? Don't be the mighty. Don't be the noble. Don't be the grand. Be the base. Don't commit yourself to the ideas of great men. Commit yourself to the ideas of a great God. back in Philippians chapter 2. Christ came as the righteous branch. That small branch planted on a hill. Philippians chapter 2, verses 6-8 through says that He came as equal with God, but made Himself of no reputation, took upon Himself the form of a servant, and was made in the likeness of men. Willingly... Yielding his divine right to fulfill the will of the Father. We spoke about it in Sunday school this morning. He steps into his earthly ministry with his public baptism, willingly and humbly submitting himself to the will of the Father by associating himself with the repentance of John. He continues through his ministry seeking the will of the Father alone. And at the end of the ministry, we see Him bowing on His knees in the Garden of Gethsemane, sweating drops of blood through anguish as He says, Lord, let this cup pass from Me. Nevertheless, not My will, but Thy will be done. Do you know what that was? What those three, three and a half years of ministry were? It was a man this big. God taking a small sapling from the cedars of Lebanon and planting that small sapling on a high hill. And as Paul teaches this truth, he did so in order that we might learn from His example. That's what verses 3-5 through of Philippians 2 say. Let nothing be done through strife or vainglory, but in lowliness of mind, let each esteem other better than themselves. And then He says, let this mind be in you. What mind? This mind. Lowliness and humility because that was the mind of Christ. And so, Jesus, the small branch, in His earthly standing, He was this big. But the spiritual reality... He was a great cedar. We find a paradox in this life. There's the small sapling and there's the great cedar. And as the Scriptures teach this truth, it teaches it in this way. If you want to be this in heaven, you be this on earth. If you want to be this in in heaven, you be this on earth. So the question for us this evening, who are we? What are we? Have we allowed the mind of Christ to permeate us in this life? Have we esteemed other better than ourselves? Have we taken upon ourselves, clothed ourselves in that humility as Christ did when He was upon this earth? Are we willing to assume an earthly standing of low degree in order that as we humble ourselves in the sight of the Lord, He can lift us up? So that as we live on this earth, with our earthly standing looking this big, as the Lord plants us and establishes us in a heavenly context, in a spiritual context, we can grow to be something great for Him. It's my prayer this evening that each one of us would take an account of our own lives. I told you this week I found that little bit of pride in my own heart as I thought about this debate and the foolishness of so many in their comments surrounding the debate. We don't need to exalt ourselves in the eyes of men. It's not our calling, our responsibility, or even our privilege to do so. Our privilege is to have the mind of Christ. To wholly and humbly submit ourselves to the will of the Father in all things. To be willing to to be that little branch in this life. Knowing that we are building up eternal rewards in the life to come. And I remind you where we began as far as application is concerned. You know, there's coming a day where the lowliness of Christ will give way to His greatness. The Scriptures tell us that God has already highly exalted Him and given Him a name which is above all names, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow and every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. That's how Philippians chapter 2 finishes this thought process. Because Jesus Christ began here, but He's becoming this one day. This is the God that we serve. This is the Savior that we have. One where every knee shall bow, every tongue shall confess, every bird of every wing will flock to that tree. And so as you think about your own necessity and and the own importance of you being clothed in humility, may I remind you again of your Savior. He who will be greatly exalted on earth as He is right now in heaven. That hope is awaiting Israel. And that hope is ours today as well. You know, this life, and particularly living out humility in this life, it's not easy. But we can do it. Because we know that this life passes away. And one day we will awake from this dream to an eternity, rooted in spiritual reward, let's make sure our spiritual reality is one of greatness through earthly humility.